My father's ploughing one, two, three, four sides of the lee ground where I sit all seeing at centre field, my back to the thorn tree they never cut. The horses are all hoof and burnished flank. I am all foreknowledge of the poem as a ploughshare that turns time up and over of the chair in leaf the fairy thorn is entering for the future of being here for good in every sense so hello everyone um my name's subadramati and i'm talking to you from the london buddhist center especially for buddha day so very um nice to see you as it were um, so the poem I just read, or part of a poem, is by Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet. And those of you who know anything about the life story of the Buddha will uh, probably have recognised that it's got a sort of uncanny resemblance to an incident from the Buddha's own life. Um, and that's why, I, yeah, that's why I love this poem. And before I tell you about this incident from the Buddha's life um, for Buddha Day, um, I'll, I'll just tell you the, the events that precede it. Um, so, um, so now we're talking about the Buddha before he was the Buddha, when he was Siddhartha, um, a kind of prince um, living in a palace. And um, of course, what happened was he realized that the palace. Uh, was actually a prison. Um, it was shielding him from reality. Um, uh, but luckily for him and for us, reality got in, as it were. In fact, um, th this is what's happening all the time in our own lives, isn't it? I mean, these stories from the life of the Buddha, are, they're archetypal, so they're mapping onto our own life. So all the time we're living life and reality all the time is trying to press in. And of course, we all the time are a sort of walking, talking defense mechanism against reality. And every now and then it manages to get in. In fact, um, at this time, when we're all um, affected worldwide by this uh, virus, I think reality has got in um, a little bit more. And that's certainly what happened uh, in Siddhartha's life. Reality got in. He saw, as if for the first time, old age, sickness and death and the possibility of a, of a sort of new, new way of being. Um, but uh, for Siddhartha, it wasn't just that reality got in, um, and this is really important uh, for us, it was that he allowed that to activate something in him. Um, and that activation took form in the ancient legend in him fleeing from the palace. He went forth from the palace um, and he started on a quest. And, uh, well, the first thing that happened was he had to face fear, actually. There he was, a cosseted young man. And he, there he was alone in the jungle, you know. Um, we might have romantic ideas about the forest and so on, um, some kind of, you know, nice place with green trees. But actually, when we talk about the forest and the time of the Buddha, it's a jungle with 
wild animals and snakes and giant spiders and ghosts as well. And um, it was really, really terrifying. So um, Siddhartha had to face fear. He was alone probably for the first time in his life. Um, and he was on this quest. The first thing he did was he met two meditation teachers and he learned to meditate and he was very adept at this and um, quite quickly surpassed his teachers. They offered him leadership of the sect of the group, but he refused that knowing that 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 wouldn't result in the end of his quest. Um, The next thing that happened is he fell in with a band of ascetics and he practiced with them. and, you know, really, these uh, people were really, really going for it, actually. They were practicing the most severe austerities um, with the firm belief that if they mortified the flesh, then, you know, well, enlightenment would result, the spirit would be freed. And um, so you have to admire them, although, as it turns out, they were on the wrong track, Um but uh, Siddhartha uh, uh, got in with them, quickly became, you know, surpassed them all, quickly became the, their leader, um, the one they all looked up to, the one they all pinned their hopes on. They really thought, well, if anybody's going to make it, Siddhartha is. Um, and, well, what happened was it didn't work. It didn't work. And the only thing Siddhartha got closer to was death. Um, and again, luckily, he realised that. And luckily, he had the courage to face the fact he'd made a mistake, a colossal mistake, actually, over um, some years, probably. Um, and he also had the courage to, um, well, yeah, admit that, um, to, to go alone again, because all his disciples now, of course, left him in disgust, thought he'd gone soft and so on. So there he was... And we can imagine this, um, well, not just thin, absolutely emaciated figure sitting on the banks of the river. I think he was so weak he even fell in the river at some point. You know, just thinking, God, you know, I've I've got this all wrong. I'm nearly dead. Um, What's next? You know, what's next? Um, He really didn't know what was going to happen. Everybody's left him. Um, But... uh, But what happens then is, well, sort of miracle, really, is he has a memory and he remembers himself as a a child um, or, you know, or a young youth, maybe about the age of 10 or 11, I imagine it. And the scene he imagines is this. He imagines, well, not imagines, he remembers um, and then revisits it in his imagination. He remembers sitting in a field with his back to a tree and he's watching his father plough the field. Now, his father was a king. He wasn't a farmer. So we think this was a sort of ritual of ploughing the field um, every spring, turning over the earth and making it fertile. Um, so, um, so then, then in that memory, he just... Uh, realised that that was a moment of innocent pleasure and delight and sort of concentration, but not a forced concentration, absorption. Um, And the tree was a rose apple tree, which always seems particularly poetic. And when he remembers this rose apple tree experience, watching his father ploughing, he thinks, oh, maybe maybe this is the key. Um, 
So do you see the echoes with the poem as well? So, um, you know, the poem has the poet sitting um, under a tree watching uh, his father uh, ploughing, watching the ground being turned up and over to make it fertile. And in the poem, um, the poet said that the poem itself is a ploughshare and it's turning time up and over. In other words, it's bringing that memory right into the present moment. Um, uh, The memory becomes a present experience in the poem, and that's exactly what happens with Siddhartha as well. The memory, he brings it to mind, and then that becomes the present experience. Um, In the poem, um, again, you've got the poet saying that the poet is all foreknowledge, um, in other words, the memory from the point of view of the future enters the future. And that's exactly the same as happens with Siddhartha. He knows, very deeply knows, with that very deep intuition where you just know something is right, that this is the key. This memory of sitting under the rose apple tree is the key to everything. And that um, he takes that memory into his mind and sits under another tree, which becomes the Bodhi tree, and um, meditates the whole night um, as morning dawns, enlightenment dawns. um, And Siddhartha becomes a Buddha, the Buddha. So what is it about that experience? Why is it so important? Why is it so crucial that... um, that was the experience that Siddhartha remembered, and why did it, why was it the key? Um, well, I think it was because, um, and this is what um, our own teacher Bhante Sangaraj just told us, and other Buddhist teachers, it's because that it was a memory of innocent delight. Um, um, there was pleasure in it, but it wasn't the it wasn't the kind of um, neurotic sort of narcotic sort of pleasure that just uh, leaves you wanting more you know um it was pleasure without any hankering in it in other words it was wholesome pleasure um and yeah childlike um sort of not utilitarian just like you know if you can remember when you were a child and you went out to play um I don't know, it was just playing, wasn't it? it wasn't, you weren't thinking, oh, what can I get out of this game or what can I learn out of it or something. You just, as a child, um, you just played. Um, so you've got this sort of sense of absorption, um, but with pleasure, with delight. But it's a particular kind of pleasure. It's a pleasure that's got no hankering in it. Um, when, the, when Siddhartha was practicing asceticism, he was trying to cut out all pleasure as if pleasure was, um, everything about pleasure was going to lead him astray from the path. It, he was afraid of pleasure, you could say. And when he has this memory, he realizes, oh, there's a kind of pleasure that you don't have to be afraid of. Um, and what's more, that's very, very important. Um, You've also got, you've, um, illustrating this, you've got a lovely um, uh, part of the story and some versions of the story is when he's sitting under the tree, the sun doesn't set the whole entire day. And I think that's a very strong symbol for that hankering isn't 
present. Um, in a sense, we create time by our craving, don't we? Because craving is almost for something in the future. Um, that's, by definition, it's for something that isn't, that isn't in our current experience. It's something we want in the future. So we bring time into being by craving. The sun not moving in the sky is a symbol where there was no craving at all present. There was delight without craving. And that's very, very important. Um, it was important for Siddhartha in, um, in gaining enlightenment that night and becoming a Buddha. And it's important for us um, on our Dharma quest um, that we really... Um, well, we look for pleasure, this particular kind of pleasure um, that hasn't got craving, wholesome pleasure. And on the other hand, we don't, um, we don't let even our Dharma life become, become something that's um, sort of utilitarian, even in a subtle way. Uh, very easy for even our Dharma life to become a sort of self-improvement sort of um, exercise, to become something a bit worthy um, a bit kind of, um, well, I don't know, a bit serious in the wrong kind of way. I mean, seriousness is a good thing, but um, a bit sort of, uh, well, I don't know, a bit worthy, a bit too, um, a bit too tinged with sort of uh, what's in it for me. Um, what am I going to get out of this? Um, and the key to not letting even our Dharma life become this is to, Yes, to find um, in our lives uh, times of just pure aesthetic appreciation. Um, yeah, this pleasure that hasn't got hankering in it. Um, the other thing that's lovely about this story and connects with this is in some versions of the story, we're told that as Siddhartha was sitting um, as a boy under this tree watching his father ploughing, of course, as the earth's being turned up to be made more fertile, um, lots of little insects and worms and so on are being churned up and some are even losing their lives um, because they've been chopped in half by the plough or they're certainly losing their homes, like Robert Burns's mouse, <laughs> to make another poetic analogy. Um, and we're told, and we can imagine the boy Siddhartha's heart just going out to these um, creatures. He's moved by them. So it isn't that he's just sitting under this tree, sort of absorbed in some kind of nice state for himself. His heart is going out to life. He's responding to life as life. Um, so his heart is, is sort of softening um, and taking in the life around him. And when I think of this incident, it really reminds me of um, uh, what Bhante says about enlightenment. One of the things he says, he says the enlightenment of the Buddha isn't something cold and detached. Um, he said the enlightenment of the Buddha sees everything and everybody as beautiful because uh, the enlightenment of the Buddha sees everything with a mind and heart of metta. Um, so that really reminds me of that when I think of this boy Siddhartha yeah his heart's just going out it's softening to all creatures around him so you've got this state of absorption sort of spontaneous 
easy um, absorption and pleasure, but it's not disconnected. It's connected from all life. Um, in the poem, the tree is right in the middle of the field, and we know that because the poet is able to look to all four sides of the field. Uh, the poet's got a panoramic view. So that's interesting, isn't it? Why have you got a tree um, in the middle of the field? Um, I don't know where Siddhartha's tree was, but in, um, in the poem, the tree's right in the middle of the field, and it's never been cut down. Um, so why is that? Well, the answer to that is really interesting. It's never been cut down because it's a fairy tree. It's a sacred tree. And this is still the tradition in Ireland, um, that you've got the sacred thorn tree, um, and it's never cut down, even if it's in the middle of a field. Um, uh, it's, it's never cut down. If you do cut it down, then there'll be a curse upon you. So um, I think there's a lovely double thing there. Um, so because it's never cut down, that tree is always there. That means that this, um, this mode of aesthetic appreciation is always available to us. In the very next minute, it's available to us. Um, and also that we mustn't cut it down. We mustn't lose sight of that. We mustn't, um, yeah, we mustn't take it down. We mustn't lose it from our lives. Um, if we lose it from our lives, then uh, we'll be cursed, as it were. Um, so I think the message um, of this incident from the Buddha's life, and then which is re-echoed in this poem by Seamus Heaney, is to really um, to find pleasure in our Dharma lives, to find innocent pleasure, and to learn to distinguish between the type of pleasure which is innocent and wholesome and the kind of pleasure that leads to hankering. They're distinct, actually, um, and it's really, really important that we learn the difference, learn to enjoy those innocent pleasures. It's very easy to spot the difference because the innocent pleasure won't leave you wanting more, um, whereas the pleasure that's tied up with craving will always leave you wanting more. It'll never be enough. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure um, I probably don't need to elaborate on the examples um, of, of that kind of more narcotic pleasure where you just uh, you want a bigger one the next time, you want a better one the next time, uh, you want a fancier one the next time. That's narcotic pleasure. That will never satisfy. The innocent pleasure just is there to be relished and enjoyed. So um, so that's the Buddha's teaching for you on this Buddha day and in this rose apple tree experience. The teaching here is look for pleasure in your Dharma life, in your life. Um, you don't even need to think of it as your Dharma life, in your life. Um, today on Buddha day, I really encourage you, um, if you can go outside, to go out and well look at some trees. Um, in Britain just now, we've got apparently a perfect spring. It's meteorologically perfect, um, our spring here in Britain. So if you're here um, in, uh, in the UK, go and look at, um, look at this late spring trees. Um, if you're somewhere else, find something beautiful. If you can't go outside, uh, just find something in your home that you can just 
just look at, just for the sake of looking, or just enjoy music, poetry, just for its own sake, not to try and get anything out of it. And then you'll be having your very own rose apple tree experience, and you can just allow that to deepen on this Buddha day. So, thank you. <laughs>